All right, everybody. So today, back on the podcast, we have Dr. Ralph Esposito. How you doing, man? Thanks so much for having me, Dave. I appreciate it. It's it's fun to get at this again. Yeah, yeah. I think this is either your third or fourth time because I was going back looking through some old ones, and uh, you were actually one of the first guests. So that was like mm-hmm. 2018 or so, which is weird. It just really never feels like it's that long. But I guess we've actually been in touch for a little while there. So always great to have you back on. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been I I think definitely the third. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been at least a few times. So, um, so welcome back. I, I know, uh, you're very busy and, uh, right now you told me everything's kind of remote, right? So you have a lot of, a lot of telemed calls going on all the time. So it's always great to get you here. Um, I, I there was a few topics specifically that I wanted to dive into. Uh, I know you deal with uh, a lot of men who are TRT. Um, you talk a lot about like men's health. So I guess if somebody hasn't seen, because it's been at least a year since we've had you on. So maybe mm-hmm. just a brief primer on your background here. Sure. So I'm a naturopathic physician and licensed acupuncturist. I did my undergraduate training at NYU in nutrition, then went on, completed my doctorate in naturopathic medicine at the university, a little bit at you know, Bridge, uh, Bastyr University, and then went over here in Connecticut on the, the University of Bridgeport. Also completed my master's there in uh, acupuncture. So I practice acupuncture in Chinese, China, traditional Chinese medicine. Then did uh, postdoctor training at NYU Urology uh, with my mentor, Gio Espinoza, which really taught, a lot, taught me a lot. And I've learned an immense amount from him and the other incredible doctors there at NYU. Uh, and then after just finished up, um, went into private practice and uh, now work as an associate in a private practice that's mostly remote. So, and I actually, because I did see that you're licensed in acupuncture and, you know, one of the first things we, when I first had you on, we talked about, you know, there's allopathic, naturopathic medicine and, and like, there's debates and, and all of that. Um, and I, I guess, generally speaking, like even like within the fitness stuff, I, see a lot of like evidence-based, like I really try to stick to like evidence-based stuff, but there's also, I I think some people think evidence-based means something different than it does. Right. And they think it means like only if you have like long longitudinal studies, and that's really not the only thing that we look at when we look at evidence. I know acupuncture and, you know, some uh, Western medicine and everything and versus Eastern medicine is, I guess there's still controversy on it. So I'd actually like to hear your perspective on that because I know you work with some people who I hold in high regard. So maybe you can just dive into why there's still controversy over that and what you've seen with traditional medicine versus maybe like acupuncture. Yeah, I think over the years, uh, when I first started, even before I started practicing, the thought was there's no evidence behind integrative or holistic or... Uh, non-conventional medicine. It, mm-hmm. it either must be a prescription or something approved by the FDA or not. Um, and that's really what divided the line between evidence-based or not. When some people think, is it evidence-based? They think, well, is it approved by some larger corporation or organization like the FDA or the NIH or uh, even insurance companies? And we've, we're starting to learn that that's not actually, it's not an actual solid line, right? Mm-hmm. It's not black and white. And what we're learning is that a lot of stuff can be considered evidence-based, even in conventional medicine, but not be uh, convincing enough. Uh, or there are things that are not evidence-based in conventional medicine that still are helpful and useful, right? Mm-hmm. So things like, um, you know, 
clomid, which is clomiphene, which is a drug used for, for fertility in women, mm-hmm. is used now in men. And there's a lot of research on it, but it's yeah. used off label for right. men. So, uh, you know, it gets very gray in that area. And then the way that I look at it is not necessarily something evidence based because something can be based on evidence and you can have like a study to show anything works or doesn't work, but it's more about evidence led. Are you treating and are you practicing medicine in a way that is led by the evidence that we actually have? And a good analogy of this is, you know, we didn't need a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial to prove that brushing your teeth prevents cavities, right? Mm-hmm. We, and, and in your field, you get this. Like, you, right, I, don't right. need an, I don't need another study to say, you know, this type of brushing, maybe it might be electric versus not, right? Like mm-hmm. types of fluoride, et cetera. But we, we don't need that study because we know that brushing your teeth pre- prevents decay and cavities and et cetera. And I think... That's a similar approach that I take. It's I don't need to wait 15 to 20 years to wait for something to be proven. And, and you know, one of my uh, early uh, professors at NYU uh, for Gen Chem, he said, don't you ever come to me and say something is proven. Mm-hmm. Like, this is even in Gen Chem, like basic chemistry that's been around for, yeah. you know, almost 100,000 years. Actually, no. I mean, it's derived from that. But it's very well established. Even then, he was like, don't tell me something's proven because nothing that we do is proven. It's only just experiments and theories that are repeated over and over. Right. And that's essentially what we're trying to do. We, in, in my approach to medicine is, look, I see some evidence suggesting that this works. Biochemistry, physio- physiologically, uh, nutritionally, all the above makes sense. Anatomically, all this stuff makes sense. Let's see if we can repeat it with multiple different studies to lead me in the right direction to actually help somebody now. Right. And, and we're learning that even so with, you know, if you look at cigarettes, well, when cigarettes were first being, you know, well, not first being used, they're still used now, but when they were uh, very popular and people just thought that they were harmless, there was no studies then, but I bet right. you there are people saying this stuff is probably not good for you because you're inhaling a smoke that's going into your lungs. And then we started learning, well, yeah, actually that stuff causes cancer. Mm-hmm. So that's what I, that's how I try to create this analogy of people understanding, well, it doesn't, you don't necessarily need the holy grail of studies to prove something is effective and you'll never prove it's effective. You'll never ever be able to prove something is hundred percent effective, but you can assume with strong confidence that something is going to be helpful for X individual or X individuals. Yeah. I I mean, there's, you know, Clomid's a good example. There's a lot of examples of things that are used off label that are shown to be helpful. Um, And just because like on the other side of it, just because the FDA has approved it doesn't mean, I I know there was actually a controversy somewhat recently, right? With the FDA approving an Alzheimer's drug, I believe. Yes. Um, Yeah. And, and, uh, and my general thought as a principle on this matter is like, if we have clear evidence that something doesn't work, you know, study after study shows like it just doesn't work. Um, again, not saying you can prove it doesn't, but I, I think you can get to an, a point where you're like, all right, this is probably maybe not helping, but there's a huge category of things that w- we just don't know enough yet. So if somebody, if, you know, if you have, and again, 
there's obviously a door here for a, a charlatan to come through and say, well, yeah, exactly. We right. haven't proven that my, you know, mud mask cleans out your colon or some craziness, right? right? Obviously. So you have to be able to parse it out, which can be very difficult. I'm just saying I'm open to things. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there who struggle with health issues and, and struggle with issues that we don't have perfect answers for. And, and if, there are things that a number of doctors and other people are trying that they feel is working for them. I'm open to it at the very least. So, yeah. And I think that's what people want to look for. And I know your audience is probably, you know, doing this themselves. It's like, what do I look for in a doctor? Do you want to look for somebody who's not so dogmatic and stuck in um, this confined structure of guidelines or not? I think guidelines are helpful. I think guidelines can tell us when you're really uh, out of your lane and when you're not. But I think it's important to look for somebody who thinks differently, but not too excessive, not too far either way that you start questioning, well, is this actually right? Because remember, you know, conspiracies and controversies and uh, anything that is so different and so extreme actually sounds very appealing to people, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very easy for people to catch that and say, oh, well, you know, that acupuncture, that acupuncturist said that he's going to decrease the size of my tumor. Have I seen acupuncture decrease size of tumors? Yes, I have, but I'm not going to make that claim. I'm not going to, and I can't even say acupuncture decreased the size of the tumor. I can say, that there are individuals who had acupuncture and over time, the size of a benign tumor decreased in size. Um, but I can't say that that's actually contributing to that. But what appeals to people is for them to hear somebody like me with credentials. Yeah, do this and you're going to decrease right. the size of your whatever your tumor or, you know, help your hair grow back where it hasn't grown in, you know, 20 years. Right. right. Those are the extremes that appeal to people. And people like by uh, people like controversy, people like extremes. And I think the first thing that you can ask is like, why isn't or why aren't you know twenty other doctors saying the same thing that I know are credible because are are tried and true in what they do? That's I think that's one of the more important things because I do see a lot of people who MD, ND, DO, dentists pretty much, you know, physical therapists, and they'll say stuff. And I'm like, that's just a complete crock. Like, yeah, there's, there's, and it's not like, oh, I'm open. I, I am very open minded, and I can be open to thinking of a different approach. But there are just things that I'm like, there, there's no way that this yeah. specific thing is gonna treat, you know, your hair loss. It's like, it's right, right, it's not gonna happen. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it really is tough. Because I've seen, you know, like, I've had family members who have had like, um, like chronic autoimmune issues or, or issues where it's like, we just don't have great answers. And I can fully understand how somebody in that dealing with chronic pain, dealing with no answers, spending thousands of dollars goes down a path looking for answers. And, and it's hard, you know, it, and most people don't even, I mean, even for us, I think probably it's hard to parse some things out, but somebody who has no training, I mean, it, it's, it's very difficult. So I can, I can certainly feel for that. So I, I have some general questions, some stuff on longevity, some stuff on like male health. Um, one that I don't think we'll probably have a long conversation on, but I related to longevity. I've heard more and more about rapamycin. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm just curious if, if maybe you could just briefly give like a primer on 
I guess what the current evidence seems to suggest it might be helpful for. Um, I've seen it in a few, like there was one study on mice with dilated cardiomyopathy that it just seemed to like almost completely reverse it. I think there's another study on dogs with cardiomyopathy that it improved, but not as much. And then I don't think any on humans. Um, but I know some people talk about it as far as like helping longevity. And, uh, obviously it's not prescribed for that, but just maybe if you could just give a little info. Yeah. So rapamycin is an immunosuppressive drug, um, used most of the time for transplants and individuals who get organ transplants. And over the past few decades, there's been an immense amount of research on it where it's been shown to improve lifespan in multiple different um, animals from worms to mice to dogs, as you mentioned, to pretty much every single um, uh, animal kingdom. And Although the mechanisms are not entirely played out because we're still learning, it's likely through its inhibition of mTOR. So mTOR it gets a lot of attention because it's what a lot of people use fasting to try to manipulate. So fasting, uh, the act of fasting will in a way inhibit mTOR. And that's because mTOR is usually a nutrient sensing um, uh, receptor or, or uh, agent. So essentially anytime that there is a uh, low amount of calories, specifically certain amino acids like uh, leucine, that, that mTOR will slow down. Uh, but that's not the only way to impact mTOR. Uh, it's suspected that even metformin can help um, inhibit mTOR through its mechanism of AMPK, which is still arguable as to whether it's helpful in individuals who are not diabetic. So what can happen is that when you inhibit mTOR, what it's doing is slows down the aging process by working on different mechanisms. One of them is improving autophagy, which is another mechanism uh, aimed for in people who like to fast. So it's, it's not a drug that's used for longevity. It's, um, I'm not recommending anybody go ahead and ask their doctor for, for rapamycin. Um, even metformin, I, I don't know if I'd be very bullish on recommending that yeah. for, for longevity, but it's interesting. And these are one of the areas where we are trying to investigate, is this something that can be helpful for, uh, with low risk, right? Because not, not everything has no risk, but do the benefits highly outweigh the risks in this specific agent rapamycin and, um, similarly to how you know, in the past, they've used different medications at varied doses for different benefits, like, you know, naltrexone, mm -hmm. low dose naltrexone yeah, actually can be quite helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's kind of the area that RAPA is working through, but a lot more investigation is needed. Um, but experts in this field are very confident that it's quite helpful for longevity. Um, but I still think the, I mean, I hate the use this analogy, but the jury's still out on that. I, mm -hmm. I think it's leaning towards it being a helpful drug for yeah. longevity, but we still, I think we need some human trials. Is it in any way, because like when we talk about mTOR, you know, a lot of people listening will think like, oh, we have to stimulate mTOR for muscle growth and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, and to some degree, you are, the things that we look for, for maybe like maximum performance, I know are obviously probably not the best for longevity. If you're talking about the extreme ends, 
Um, to some degree, we do talk about these stressors in life, like working out, um, you know, like extreme heat, things like that, that even though chronic amounts of it would not be great there, it seems to be this hormetic response to, you know, like individual smaller doses of it. Um, could that be analogous to what you see with mTOR where like, you know, the mTOR response we get from working out or higher protein intakes is not necessarily going to be problematic from a longevity standpoint versus the longer term suppression with rapamycin, if that makes sense. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And now remember, I think a lot of people misunderstand, um, or I should other say, I think a lot of people understand physiology more than a lot of people think they understand physiology more than they actually understand physiology. Mm. And very rarely in, in, in biology, is one system completely turned off mm. or completely turned on, right. right? So I hear people always talk about, you have to turn off your sympathetic nervous system and up right. your parasympathetic. Uh, if you did, you would die, right? Because right? you would not have a heartbeat. You, you need some type of sympathetic response. So it's all relative. So, uh, and that, that applies to even hormones as well is, uh, and, and receptors like mTOR, you know, you have to keep insulin as off, like insulin production off. It'll never be off. It'll never be completely zero. Um, it can be suppressed um, over a long times of complete fasting, right? But um, at some point, the, the body needs to get glucose into the cell. So there's always a very low level circulating in the blood, but might not be detectable. And the same thing comes with mTOR. I think we can't lose the the benefits of the foundations of health when it comes to sleep nutrition and exercise and exercise if you told me exercise is bad because it stimulates mTOR i would say you're probably out of your mind mm -hmm. right because anybody who says exercise is bad for you um clearly has not looked at the evidence of muscle mass um cardiorespiratory fitness uh uh, your ability to utilize fuel as energy, uh, like basal metabolic test or metabolic testing, mm -hmm. and that strong correlation with reduced cardiovascular risk uh, and overall mortality. And those things being very fit, right? Having a high cardiorespiratory fitness, having a um, improved muscle mass require you to be active and require mTOR to be active too, because otherwise you won't be able to synthesize protein and, and muscle. So I think it's very clear that it's a Goldilocks type of rule rather mm -hmm. than an all or nothing. Sure. So it's, it's, can we get uh, suppression, intermittent suppression of mTOR or inter intermittent stimulation of mTOR at high levels and low levels, not completely on or off so that our, our body can maintain this homeostasis and actually there are benefits of muscle protein synthesis and there are benefits of fasting, yeah. but that doesn't mean you have to do all of them. And I, and I also think that most people think fasting is like three days. Like mm -hmm. I have to fast three days. Otherwise I don't get a benefit. Right. That might not be true. It might be just 24 hours. It might be enough to help regenerate and stimulate autophagy. Research suggests that it, that it might be. So you don't really need to go all out and, you know, more is not always better. Yeah. It, the longevity research as well as, I mean, just fasting and all that is very interesting to me. And 
I, I know right now it's not totally clear. It'll be interesting to see if, if I don't know, next couple of decades, maybe like what comes out. Um, I personally have done intermittent fasting like before, like, I feel like it's, you know, it kind of goes in waves and people find it like more popular, but even since 2011, I've been doing it just like kind of the standard 16, eight, um, mm-hmm. every week I do one 24 hour fast. So I finish my last meal on cool. Sunday and then on Monday night I eat. So a lot of times when I say 24 hour fast, people think I don't eat for a whole day, but that would really be like 36 hours. Right. So, right. um, and I do that every week and it's not, I'd like, it would be great if it's given me nice benefits. It's actually partly convenience. My Mondays are very busy, so it's, it's easy for me to do <laughs> it. Um, I have some GI issues, so it's kind of nice to just not eat <laughs> for a day. Right. Um, but it would be great if, if I found out that, you know, there are some, some long lasting benefits. Um, I mean, you would know even better than I would. I've, I've seen the research. I just don't know if there's anything like super conclusive, like long-term. Yeah. I think where, where a lot of the benefits, uh, where a lot of the research is suggesting is, um, on, uh, autoimmune conditions, mm-hmm. it can be very helpful for um, per- perhaps Alzheimer's or dementia prevention can be helpful for as well. I think it hits almost every body system when it comes to that re, you know, I- IBS slash IBD can yeah. also be helpful for that for obvious reasons. Cause you're not, you're get letting the, the right. gut rest, but, um, you know, it, this is the issue like the research wants to apply it to everything. And then I think like, what are the, the big hitters that fasting can be helpful for? And usually what I see it is for uh, diabetes mm-hmm. or um, insulin resistance, autoimmune conditions, and GI issues. That's yeah. where I would say the most benefit is pulled from. At the very least, it makes me feel better. I, I don't know if it's resulting in a long-term uh, lowering of inflammation. Um, but sometimes I do think like, you know, it, how much worse could I be? if I didn't have all of these dietary things in place and my sleep hygiene and, and all that, like, I'd like to think that it's, you know, each little thing is a little block that adds up and at least helps me. It, it does. And I think that's where a lot of people are misunderstand how integrative medicine works. They think it's analogous to take a pill and it'll treat this, right? Take a pill, take this birth control for your PMS or right. take this, uh, uh, you know, migraine medicine for your, for your migraines. Right. So, but that's not how it works. The way that it works is we have to reduce the amount of stress and the pressure on the body to ease off on the systems that allow the body to actually recover. So we see this often in individuals who are sleep deprived where we, we, or have issues sleeping, I should say, is that, when we reduce a lot of the other stressors in their life, like their stress, their training or their diet, they're able to function at a better, um, better when they have less quality sleep. Now I'm not saying less quality sleep is good for you, mm-hmm. but where the body senses stress in multiple different ways from nutrition, like lack of calories from uh, injury from sleep deprivation, from environmental stressors like toxins, from social stressors, from emotional stressors. And our goal is to actually reduce the input of all these things to allow the body to handle how much these stressors it can do. And then once we exceed that threshold, that is when disease occurs. So the goal is not necessarily, you know, fasting is going to cure whatever, but, um, Will fasting help me 
recover better for X things or will it help me reduce the amount of stress is in my life for, you know, sugar sweetened foods? Like, yeah, it probably will. And that's going to reduce the load, but it's not going to, you know, resolve the other issues that are coming along. And that's where it's really important to pay attention. Right. And so, you know, we've talked about longevity. We talked about um, diabetes. Tangentially, I wanted to get your opinion actually a lot on, um, on continuous glucose monitoring, because mm-hmm. I actually had somebody like a company send me one and I feel bad. It's been like two months. I've just been very busy. I haven't even gotten to use it, but um, it's a month's worth. And I've never, I mean, I've looked into it, but not a lot. Um, you know, I've certainly heard people talk about it. It's not an area I've, I've never had an issue, you know, my HbA1c, my fasting glucose, they've always been fine. Um, when I've had, like, I, I've done keto a few times and bought, and bought the like keto mojo monitor, and I've never really had any issues with it, but I still am a very curious person. So um, I hope to start it within the next couple of weeks. And maybe you could just touch on where we think it could be useful, most useful. Um, I, I obviously diabetics, but you know, for the, like the lay person, what can we get yeah. valuable data from that? If you are a person who, well, I, I think I consider myself somebody who eats very well. I, mm-hmm. I don't really consume sweets. I don't really have desserts. I drink very little, if ever, um, by choice. And the CGM for me, even then was very helpful. Mm. So just because you eat well, doesn't necessarily, it's not going to have, uh, doesn't necessarily mean you can, um, predict what a food would do to your body. So I think everybody can benefit at least from a month's worth of CGM. And the reason why is because you'll be able to see not only how does food impact your blood sugar, but how does, uh, how do other things like sleep quality? or sleep deprivation, or um, exercise, or lack of exercise, walking versus running versus sprinting versus strength training, like all of these things will impact your blood sugar. Um, But I think at the most basic level, a CGM will allow you to identify which foods spike my blood sugar. And what can I do to regulate that or correct that? And blood sugar is a problem, but blood blood sugar is not really my target. And that sounds very contradictory. But what do you Mm -hmm. mean, Ralph? Like blood sugar is really important. Like, yes, it is. But that blood sugar is a proxy for insulin. So I have to assume, and most of the time physiology would agree, that when blood sugar is high, insulin is high in a non-diabetic individual. Now, if you're type 1 diabetic, or insulin-dependent diabetic, your blood sugar will be elevated and you won't have insulin. But insulin is the problem. Insulin is what drives the sugar into your cells. Insulin is what prevents lipolysis and for you to burn, I hate the term, but burn fat. Mm -hmm. Insulin is pro-inflammatory. Insulin stimulates pro-inflammatory enzymes. Insulin is the problem. That's, That's the actual issue. Blood sugar becomes a problem over long periods of time mm-hmm. when it's uncontrolled, and that's diabetes, right. right? And that's not what I'm talking about here. I assume most of the people who are using CGM uh, now, uh, who, are, who are like not diabetic, are using it to see what is it, or what are they, what is it doing to their blood sugar? Yeah. So that's what you have to look into, um, and it allows you 
to identify what foods agree with you, what foods are problematic, even foods that you didn't even think would be problematic might be like, you know, for me, sweet potatoes, a big problem, right? Really? Yeah, a big problem. Actually, just as bad as sweet potatoes. Uh, sorry, regular potatoes. So no different for me in terms of blood sugar response. Uh, other fruits like apples, very bad for me, like spike my blood sugar. And is that alone or within a meal? I always do, whenever I'm doing a new food, I always do it alone. Which, Which makes sense. Like, I just, I would yeah. just wonder, are these foods, you know, just for people listening, um, generally speaking, it seems if you eat it with protein, if you eat it with fiber, it, it's going to lower the response. So are you still eating Correct. those foods, but just with other things? Yeah. Whenever I want to figure out what a food is doing to my blood sugar, I always do it alone. And most of the time in the morning. Mm-hmm. So really there's been nothing in my body besides this food. Right. Um, or if I do it in the afternoon, it's been about four hours since I last ate my blood sugar stable. So it's usually I average around like 80 to 85, mm. um, standard deviation, usually less than 10. So if I'm level, then I'll introduce the food and see what it does to my blood sugar. And that will tell you, you know, is this food alone problematic for me? Now you're right. You can dampen the glycemic load or the glycemic uh, response to a food by introducing either protein or fat or fiber. Uh, but basic nutrition tells you that like you should have, you know, fats with your foods and protein with your meals because it stabilizes your blood sugar, but now you can actually see it. And now you can actually see if it does that for you. Uh, I haven't done like apples with like almond butter, but Mm -hmm. maybe that would blunt the response. I'm sure it would relative to just, just an apple, but I know enough that uh, that apple is going to be problematic for me. And it, I just avoid it as much as possible if I can. Also not a fan of apples. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I would just wonder but, like, like what's a good food a carb source for you, for example? Um, quinoa. So not spike my blood sugar. It would just be interesting to me if you, if you took 50 grams of carbs from sweet potatoes, 50 grams of carbs from quinoa, whatever your amount of, obviously you just said, you know, the response I would be very curious to see if you had that same 50 grams with whatever, five ounces of like a somewhat lean ground beef. Mm-hmm. And just to see, like, did it actually completely even it out where it, in that case, you could almost make the argument. You don't have to think about it if you're eating it within meals, or was it still, you know, relatively still higher with the sweet potatoes? Mm-hmm. I don't know if, if you know the answer to that. Yeah. Um, uh, it depends on, how much, how insulin sensitive somebody is. So these foods are less likely to impact me because I have a relatively higher percent of muscle mass, mm. which is really your, your best way of utilizing sugar. Um, but yes, if you corrected for total carbohydrate grams, um, in me adding it with a protein. Now, again, we're thinking, you know, sweet potato with ground beef, is it a, like, you know, a 90, 10, or is it like right. an 80, 20, right? The more fat, the more blunted it's going to be. So it, it it's so, again, this is the, uh, this is the art of the nutritional sciences. This is why nutrition is so controversial. It's probably more controversial than politics. So it's, it's, everybody has an opinion mm. because everybody eats. 
yeah. and everybody thinks that they know what's going on. Same way as like everybody votes and everybody works in the government. That means you know everything that's going on. That's like, right. no, I, I don't, I'm sorry. And I'm not going to try to. And I think that's the same way for nutrition. So that's where even, even myself, I am humbled many times by my patients where I say, you know, they're like, I'm eating really well. I'm eating good foods and foods I told them to eat. Like mm -hmm. you can have quinoa and you can have berries and you can have, uh, you know, half a banana on occasion. And then I realized I'm like, yeah, this is not good for them. And even myself, I'm, I'm, I'm very knowledgeable. I still need to figure out what works for that person. Now, could I figure that out over three months, uh, six months of, you know, visits, consultations, lab work, uh, progress? Yeah, I could probably tell you, you know what, you've been eating quinoa for dinner three times a week. It's probably not good for you. Let's see if we cut that out, what happens. And most of the time, when we make those little tiny changes, people respond. Um, Based on what you're saying, if you didn't have the uh, CGM, you'd still maybe be able to figure it out. Would that just be based on other blood work or? Yeah. So I would look at things like a glycomark. I would look at things like a hemoglobin A1C, fasting insulin, blood glucose, looking at their lipids, right? All of these things. And even things like their body fat, their weight, Yeah. are they getting stronger? Um, all of these things kind of come into play. But with a CGM, it allows you to do it quicker and you can identify that right sooner and help people you know more conveniently yeah it's very as somebody who has twice done a extremely strict elimination diet starting with like almost nothing adding foods and, and trying to determine based on symptoms and and you know symptoms can fluctuate um i would love if there was like a continuous like crp monitor or inflammation monitor something like equivalent yeah. um because it can be extremely difficult to determine what this one food does and maybe you know maybe it's the next day that you feel off and, and so um i think for people who if you believe that the glucose fluctuations are very important then yeah i, I can't think of anything better than a cgm to to kind of determine that do you have a level where like some people would argue well as long as it's under 100 it's fine or maybe if you're eating it's under like 130 do you have a level where you're like this is now what i would consider problematic for average blood glucose? Yeah, like, like a response after introducing the food. Postprandial. Yes. So after, after having the food. Okay. Uh, anything above 140 is problematic. Okay. So if something spikes your blood sugar above 140, it's, it's creating a hyperinsulinemic response. That means it's probably not the best for you. But also what you need to consider is how quickly does it drop? Mm -hmm. How quickly does it go to normal? There are, there are a lot of individuals who... Even myself, if I, I haven't eaten in almost six hours, right? So if I went and had a apple or a banana, my blood sugar would go over 140, uh, wow. probably over 150. Um, I just took out my CGM, but once I get one back on, I'll let you know what happens. I'll, yeah. I'll do this for you. My blood sugar will go up above 140. I actually did a post on this, which talks about how Apple cider vinegar can blunt the blood sugar response, but we can talk about that in a second. But the, the speed at which or the rate at which blood sugar drops is actually a better indicator of insulin sensitivity than what your absolute peak is. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's basically like an oral glucose tolerance test. Right. When, we, when pregnant women take a glucose tolerance test, they're doing 
uh, a pure sugar and they see that their blood sugar spike, um, you know, after two hours and anything above 200 is problematic. That means that it was definitely above 200 prior to that two hour response, right? right. So it must've been at like 300 or 250 or whatever it is. But if it does not come down below 200 after two hours, that means you're not utilizing that sugar as energy. And that's insulin resistance. So what's more important is how quickly do you uh, respond and get your blood sugar back to normal? Not, not essentially what is the max level. Right. Yeah, I'm very interested to kind of play around with it. And just two like, quick stories of my like, playing around with the, um, like the ketone and glucose monitor. So years back, um, so my aunt is a type 1 diabetic. And at Thanksgiving, we were just curious. And this, this is why I... I I'm interested to see the responses with combinations versus solo because, you know, I'm like, I don't know, 23 or something at the time and just, you know, total eating everything on Thanksgiving. And we, uh, I mean, you know, I don't know, five, six, 7,000 calories. And we tested my blood glucose and it was like 130. Now, again, you're talking about a quite active 23 year old who, and there's also plenty of protein and fats and things Mm -hmm. like that. Uh, maybe last year when I was like full on keto and I, uh, I, you know, my levels were never super high, maybe like two millimoles. And again, as an experiment, I wanted to see what happened if I would have a very obviously high fat cheat day, basically of like, you know, the, the keto legal foods that most people would say like, like quest bars, like just crap like that. Again, mm-hmm. just to, just to experiment wouldn't recommend it. Um, and I, I was fascinated because when I tested just a carb source, uh, even like a small amount, I think I had like some honey and like a, like a pixie stick or something like that. And my blood glucose was like 145. Like, and I, I was pretty surprised just because I'd never seen it personally that high, maybe even 150. But the day that I had like 6,000 calories of all these keto friendly foods, but the, the total carbs was actually like 300 grams, which you would think is like, there's no way you're still going to be in keto. Um, because I guess of all the fiber and fat, I was still at like two millimoles and my glucose was, um, under like 120. I mean, it was basically normal. So I just thought that was really interesting. I I never made like a full video on that, but I was actually really shocked that I was still in ketosis with that many carbs and calories, but I guess I was in it for a long enough, like a number of weeks. And, um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I just thought it was interesting. Yeah, I mean, technically, you can't be in nutritional ketosis at what did you say? How many grams of carbs? Two hundred. So, like, you know, I use like a tracker, and it was three hundred grams of carbs, but a ton of that was these fibers that are that make these products keto. Yeah, you know, right. So, right, like the 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 um, isomaltoglucose, I think it's called. Um, yeah, so technically well it's it's, okay so there's a lot of play uh, factors at play here well number one a lot of those carbs are not absorbed but then metabolized by the bacteria in your gut and then converted to short short chain fatty acids Mm -hmm. or sugar alcohols which are about uh depends on the sugar alcohol between like two to three calories per gram right so that could be one thing that's playing a role here the other is you probably were in ketosis for such a long period of time that it, your your body was uh, has not did not switch over to um, any type of glucose metabolism. So mm-hmm. that's one possibility as well. 
if you told me, Ralph, I ate 300 grams of carbs and I was still in nutritional ketosis, I would say you're lying. Right. <laughs> but it, it happened to you. So, it's, it, you know, it's very hard to explain. Um, my bet is that you were young. You were probably already in nutritional ketosis. I don't know what your training was like around that time. Maybe you were exercising um, a lot and glycogen deplete. I mean, that day I was off. I mean, I have very detailed, like I could pull up the fit day account of that day and I have like everything in Excel. Um, like I said, I was very surprised, but it, I th- I just wondered if it was maybe so high fiber, so high fat. And again, I, I could find the numbers for you, but like mm-hmm. 300 grams of carbs. I mean, how much of that was again, sugar, alcohols and, and um, right. all of these things that they count. So, uh, but yeah, I agree. Normally if somebody said they had that many carbs and then who knows, maybe if I did that one more day, it, it would have completely been the opposite or like, you know, so it, it could have just yeah. been a transient thing. Yeah, it's it's hard to stay in nutritional ketosis above 70 grams of carbs. Yeah. I've, I've been surprised by how much, and I think even uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick talked about this, like people, most people who think they're doing these keto diets, they're often not. I, I mean, I've found that like, if I even just try to keep my protein at one gram per pound, I'll be, I'll do that for like a week or two and I'll be at like 0.5 millimoles. Like I actually yeah. have to drop my protein quite a bit, really increase the fat, um, and, and then, or, or if I've done, like I have done a couple three day fasts and then, yeah, I'll be in like, you know, maybe two millimoles again. Um, I've never had some people have these levels of like four to five. I've never had that. Um, even when I try to ketone, yeah. uh, salt, I have not tried to ketone ester, but the ketone salts like bumped it up like 0.3 or something. It wasn't very significant. Yeah. 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 Most people cannot, like, again, it's uh, keto is has gotten so popularized that everybody's a keto expert. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very, very difficult to get into ketosis, nutritional ketosis on a high protein diet. Yep. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that might be okay. Right. But you're not in nutritional ketosis. And that's just because we're using a lot of these amino acids for energy. And that's what the body wants to do. Um, I could say it's harder to stay in nutritional ketosis on a higher carb diet, but it's not, un- it's not impossible on a high protein diet, although it will definitely throw you off if you do. I think it's best for people to uh, find the nutritional plan that works best for them. I- I'm not an advocate of, you know, everybody must do low carb, every must- everybody must do keto, everybody must be vegan, like Mediterranean. It's what works for you that's sustainable that's also aligned with some of the data and literature we know like if you are insulin resistant you you have like you will have a very tough time convincing me that carbs are okay for you to eat at what's recommended by you know the academy of nutrition or uh any type of large organization the american heart association right like there's no way that 50 gram, 50% of your calories should be right. coming from carbohydrates if you're diabetic. It's just, yeah. <laughs> just, just science. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I know we don't have a, a ton of time left. Last topic that is related. Um, there was an article put out. I'll look at the date here. Um, I'm sure you're quite familiar with it. So September 13th in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, the Carbohydrate Insulin Model, a Physiological Perspective on the Obesity uh, Pandemic. And people, a number of people sent that to me. And it's interesting because you have like the whole calories in versus calories out. And then you have the like insulin model of obesity. Um, and it kind of seems like, I don't want to say that they're coming together, but at least the way it maybe was misrepresented, but the way that I'd always seen it was like 
like somebody like Gary Taubes, it really seemed like he was saying, like, you can gain fat in a deficit and you will, it basically seemed like it was totally based on carbs. And a lot of other people said like, no, it's calories in versus calories out. That's kind of the camp I've always come from. Uh, and then I heard Peter Atia say on a podcast, I don't know, two years ago, like, yes, we know that to lose weight, your calories have to be less than you burn, but we have to get into why, which I think if that's the stance, totally makes sense. Um, this paper, it seems like the insulin model, they are even acknowledging that these types of foods cause an insulin response, cause increased appetite, cause increased calorie consumption, but they're, I believe, still acknowledging that these people are eating more than they're burning, which seems like maybe that's different than what they had previously said. Um, I don't know specifically where you fall on this argument, but I'd just be interested to hear your thoughts. Calories matter, but not as much as we think that they do. Um, and that's me saying, I don't think somebody can lose weight if they're eating excessive calories, mm -hmm. if they're already eating a healthy diet. So if somebody is at a, you know, a, uh, a homeostatic weight mm -hmm. and they want like they're at their, uh, you know, their normal weight and they want to lose more weight, they can manipulate that with macronutrient content, but the calorie intake will have a large influence on that uh, at very high and very low levels. So one of the things to understand is how do these, how do macronutrients impact our hormonal levels and specifically insulin? You cannot initiate, or, or in other words, insulin inhibits lipolysis. It, it's just as simple as that. It, insulin, because it's in a fed state, will cause the body or cause fat cells to slow their metabolism or slow down lipolysis or, or beta oxidation and, and uh, other biological path uh, biochemical pathways. That does not mean that if your insulin is high, you can't burn, you can't lose weight. So insulin matters, but always within the context of total calorie intake. So then somebody would say, well, what does it matter if you got 50% of your calories from carbs, but you're still within your macronutrients, then you should be fine. Maybe, maybe if somebody's metabolism in terms of their muscle protein count, their muscle mass and their thyroid function is adequate, if they're not insulin resistant. And most of the time people underestimate how many calories they're actually eating. So if we can utilize hormones, which, which we've acknowledged, I think, as a, as a scientific community, have an impact on the way that we metabolize fuel, epinephrine, adrenaline, cortisol, insulin, all of these things have an impact. It would be naive to say that it's only calories. Yeah. Because there are other things that impact how our fat cells use at work. Cortisol completely inhibits lipolysis. Insulin inhibits lipolysis. Even in fact, cortisol induces um, lipogenesis. So it causes you to make uh, more adipose cells. So it's hard for me to put my both feet in one camp. 
I have to acknowledge that there is science behind both of these things. But again, as we started, anybody who goes extremes in either way is probably wrong because there's always something at play, whether it's at an intricate level, at an individual level, that makes the conversation questionable. You know, I, I've had patients who eat the same amount of calories, but they've switched their macro content from high protein to uh, from uh, high carb to high protein and low low carb, and they got they lost weight. Is that because they eventually started losing more calories, uh, eating more calories? Is that because they've tapped into fat stores that they weren't able to before? I don't know. I haven't done experiments on those people, but I can't disregard or ignore the fact that clinically we see this. I guess what I would wonder and what I would love to say or talk to Gary Tavs about is, is like, I, I fully agree. Like, like if you have this thing on calories in versus calories out, there's just that simple equation and the acknowledgement that absolutely activity hormones can dramatically affect those numbers. I guess I would want to ask him and, and I don't know your thoughts, but like, would you acknowledge that if net somebody is burning more than they are consuming again, net, they will lose tissue weight. And if they are eating more than they are burning net, they will gain tissue weight. And, and that's kind of what I would say, because again, all the, I, I totally acknowledge like, you know, maybe, maybe if they had high cortisol, high insulin, it's a disaster and they're, they're losing all muscle or something, you know, they just, just, they just can't let go of the fat. I just mm -hmm. would go back to just like the thermodynamics of it, of like, at the end of the day, would they still acknowledge that the equation still holds true? And then you could get into, you know, the hormones and how they affect all that. Yeah. I think anybody who disagrees with, I mean, it's hard to disagree with physics. Which is my point. Right. Yeah. So right. I just, so I, I just, I, and I think a lot of the people talk over each other and I, I think all of your points are super valid. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe people are just emotional because they're so vested in it, but. Oh Yeah. Nutrition is emotional, as, as, as emotional as politics and emotional sometimes as religion. Yep, for sure. All right, man. Well, again, thank you for taking the time. I, I know you're very busy, so it's great to have you on here. Uh, where can people My find pleasure. more of your stuff? Uh, Instagram, uh, at Dr. Ralph Esposito. My website, DrRalphEsposito.com. Same thing on Twitter. All of my material and information is there. Awesome. Free to we'll share. certainly have links. Thanks, God.